This episode is sponsored by Lens Protocol. Lens lets you own your own social media presence, easily monetize your content, and carry your social graph with you wherever you go. That means you, the creator, can focus on creating without ever having to worry about losing access to your account or having to build a new following again. Lens also lets you engage more closely with your fans, directly monetize your work, and if you're a dev, easily spin up a new app with Lens's full suite of developer tools. Lens Protocol is the social layer of Web3. Join the waitlist at waitlist.lens.xyz for the last social media handle you'll ever need. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and today we get to hear from Rebecca Reddick, Chief Legal and Policy Officer at Polygon Labs. I was first introduced to Rebecca years ago when she was general counsel at Ave, and I have been trying to get her on the podcast for the longest time. So I'm really excited that I was finally able to have this conversation with her. This is the first legal and policy focused conversation we've had on Rehash in over a year. The last conversation we had on crypto regulation and policy was with Catherine Wu from Archetype and Crypto Council for Innovation all the way back in season two. We're now in season five. The main difference I wanted to touch on in this episode, other than just getting a more current take on where crypto regulation currently stands, is getting a more global perspective on how different countries or regions of the world are looking at crypto. Rebecca talks about key pieces of crypto legislation like the Mika markets and crypto assets in the EU and FIT, Financial Innovation and Technology for the 21st Century Act in the U.S., and shares her perspective on which countries have the most crypto-friendly policies. We focus most of the conversation on crypto policy, but we do chat a little bit on the legal front as well. Rebecca talks about some of the key court cases we've seen recently in the U.S., such as the Coinbase case, and shares her takes on what she believes the SEC strategy is and what that means for us as people building and working in the industry. Finally, we wrap up with some spicy questions from our community, like how to stay out of jail as somebody building in Web3 or whether crypto will ever succeed in the U.S. Rebecca was nominated by Karsten and voted onto the podcast by Justin Conley, Caitlin Donnelly, Daji Reyes, Meg Lister, Aaron Soskin, David Silverman, Anonymous, and Karsten. Also, shout out to Karsten for submitting a lot of the questions that you'll hear me ask in this episode. And so without further ado, here's my conversation with Rebecca. Hey, Rebecca, how are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I'm super excited to have you on. We have not had a legal expert on rehash in many seasons which I'm shocked about because this is something I think about all the time and maybe worry a little too much about or a, a right amount about. But I'm really excited to have you on to talk about some of the legal and policy issues in crypto right now that I think anybody working in the space should really be aware of. And you're really well-versed, not just in U.S. law, but also abroad in Europe and elsewhere as well. And so this conversation really will be like a global crypto regulation and legal conversation and not just focused on the U.S. So to start out with, I want to ask you a little bit about your background. I first became aware of you when you were general counsel at Aave, which was years ago. And for the last nine months or so, you have been at Polygon Labs and you've taken on more of a policy role there. 
And I just wanted to ask to start off, how did you decide to make that transition? Of course, you're still doing all of the lawyerly duties as well at Polygon, but just taking on this additional policy role, what made you interested in that? Yeah, I think some of it did happen when I was at the Ave companies because regulators were trying to figure out DeFi over a number of years. And so we'd just get reach outs. Sometimes the info email is like, is there anyone who can talk about this with us? And so I just started doing it organically and explaining what DeFi was. And I had been outside counsel to lots of big software developers in the DeFi space, even before we were calling it DeFi for many, many years. And so understood the tech and understood a lot of financial regulations, both in the US and abroad, to your point, and just like how regulators and policymakers think about finance, right? What are the pillars of good regulation and things like that? So I'd go and start explaining it. And it really ramped up a lot in 2022. And then we really faced a lot of the unfortunate events that happened in the latter half And I will say, even after the fall of FTX, I had this moment, whether it was a dream or sort of a pseudo dream, where I thought I need to be doing full-time policy. And I had a reach out from Polygon Labs to say, do you want to do this full-time? And it just felt like very right, especially because, and you can see this happening now all over the world, crypto policy is front and center. Obviously, it's not the only thing going on all over the world, but People are trying to figure this out. And yes, some jurisdictions had good regulation, like Japan had centralized exchange regulation for a long time. But Mika just came into effect. The UK is really thinking about it. And I've been working there for a long time because obviously it was headquartered in London. And then obviously in the US, it's really taken preeminence in a way that it hadn't before. So I think it's been very important. And when you think about policy, and maybe the important thing to do here is to distinguish between when you're in-house counsel doing legal work, you are applying the law as it is today. When you're thinking about policy, you're really working on what the law will be in the future. And so I do think looking at all of that together is a holistic approach to risk and thinking about how laws do work and will work in this space. I think in a way, lobbying is almost a more important job than lawyering right now because a lot of the laws don't even exist yet. So it's hard to apply laws that don't exist to a particular case. So I think what you're doing now with dipping your toes more into the policy space is super impactful and, dare I say, more impactful than purely doing legal work alone. I mean, it's really exciting. I think one of the things I love the most, especially because I worked with software developers for so long and do that on a day-to-day basis and really get a lot out of that, though, is thinking about what this means and explaining why, to your point, today our traditional financial regulations may not apply to how this system works and really trying to come up with a way to make it super understandable because the way we all talk about it and the people in this space are like smart contracts, sequencers, just words that sound like we're all living in outer space. And we know what everybody's talking about. But really, when you talk to normies or even pseudo normies, you know, people who are just learning about the tech, You really want to make things understandable. So I don't talk about smart contracts. I talk about software that lays out the rules of the road and that's super transparent and things like that. So I think breaking it down and trying to explain why this doesn't fit in our current system is an important role. So I'm getting a lot out of it. And on the legal side, working at a software development company, I do get to still work with software developers day to day. So that's really rewarding. That's so good to hear. And then sort of follow up to that, too, with regards to your role at Polygon now. How has it been different working at an infrastructure provider versus at a DAP provider? Well, I think what everybody probably understands is that thinking about decentralization is so different. I have strong views on what principles 
really filter into decentralization. But when you have like a proof of stake network, there is some automaticity on the decentralization front that just comes into it. There's still obviously thought around how decentralization works and moving things forward. But there are different principles and things you have to think about from that level versus just when you're at a DAP provider. So there's those types of differences. And at Polygon Labs, we're building lots of different types of scaling architecture. And at DAP providers, sometimes they're building the same types of things. Sometimes they're building different types of things. When you're looking at DAPs, it depends on what they're doing. So if you're looking at something like DeFi, you're still looking at financial laws and regulations and figuring that out. If you're looking at something like Web3 Social or these other consumer brand apps or things like that, that's a whole other world of regulations, whether it be on content moderation or things like that. Yeah, I'm sure. And I don't know how much you were involved in the Lens uh, stuff before you jumped over to Polygon, but I bet that was a totally different assignment than what you were used to working mostly in the DeFi space with Aave before. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what I was alluding to. It's very different. You're sort of learning something new or focused on something new. But look, that's what you do as in-house counsel is you take a lot of your skill set and figure that out. And then you also have outside lawyers with special expertise and things like that. But the other thing is there are so many non-financial applications being built right now for blockchain. And I would say when we saw DeFi come out of the last bear market as this really novel and interesting type of app, I think that these non-financial use cases, I think, are going to be sort of the biggest things that proliferate after this bear-ish type market that we're in. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's how we're going to bring the mainstream into Web3 is not through financial cases, but through social and content and entertainment, I think. Yeah. And I these big brands are doing all these like consumer loyalty things and like Nike swoosh. And I just think about like my kids playing video games and wanting to wear swoosh sneakers and FIFA and things like that. And I think that will sort of bring things, as you said, forward and into more mainstream. So taking kind of a high level view of the legal landscape in crypto around the world, how do you currently see various countries or parts of the world approaching crypto regulation at this moment? It's actually really exciting. And I think we can sort of rank them by level of comprehensiveness of implemented regulation. So the EU has MECA, which is the market and crypto sets regulation. It is meant to be a hugely comprehensive set of regulation that both covers CFI, centralized exchanges, custody, OTC traders, things like that, and also token issuance. It breaks up different types of tokens into asset reference tokens, e-money tokens, which are what you'd expect them to be. Asset reference tokens can be types of stablecoins and then utility tokens, which is everything else. And it sets out all sorts of different types of laws and rules, including for stablecoin issuers and level of reserves and things. So all the things we really talk about when it comes to CFI, it has two important carve outs. One is for services that are offered in a fully decentralized manner. They do not define what fully decentralized means. But I think that is meant to allude to things like DeFi. And then they also carve out full NFTs. So if you're fractionalizing NFTs and using them as some sort of financial instrument, they may fall under Mika. But if you're just talking pure NFTs, very much art-based and things like that, those are also exempted from Mika. There are also these, what I call like attendant pieces of regulations, the transfer on fund regulation, which is a piece of AML. They have a data act, which deals with smart contracts. And so they are building out a really, really comprehensive piece. It's been enacted by the parliament. It still has to go through a rulemaking process with some of their European regulators, the European Banking Authority and the European Securities Markets Authority. But that's sort of like a check. They've done that. And they have to do a report on DeFi and a report on NFTs 
within a certain number of months, but like number of months in terms of years after Mika is implemented. So we probably won't see anything DeFi-wise or NFT-wise in Europe for a while. The interesting thing is Patty Hansen, who's like head of European policy at Circle, tweeted maybe a couple months ago now, post-Mika, they have seen a huge level of investment, maybe like 25-30% of investment by VCs in EU-based crypto companies. And so all this talk of like, oh, well, regulatory clarity really helps. Like, I think that's good evidence that it does. So that's that. As I said, Japan has had good regulation on centralized exchanges for a long time. They are really forward thinking in terms of looking at DAOs. They're also really forward thinking in terms of stable coins. They've opened themselves up to not only having yen backed stable coins, but also having USD backed stable coins trading there. Singapore has been really amazing on this stuff. They've done a lot of experimentation. They are really open to understanding it. They've done a lot on the centralized side, including with banks. So they did a big testing with JP Morgan on Polygon with Uniswap and Aave for JP Morgan to do some of their first DeFi transactions, which was really exciting. And they keep building this out and looking into it. And then obviously Hong Kong opened itself back up to retail trading and crypto and are definitely trying to attract builders there. The UK has also put out a really comprehensive set of crypto asset consultation. Again, they're focusing on CFI and token issuance and sort of leaving DeFi and validation and things that are much more crypto native for later stages of regulation. And then you have the US, which did, in very exciting news, just last week passed the FIT, Financial Innovation and Technology Act for the 21st century, out of both the House Financial Services Committee and the House Ag Committee. Financial Services oversees the SEC, Ag oversees the CFTC. So this was also meant to be a super comprehensive bill. It was dual sponsored by the chair of the Financial Services Committee and the Ag Committee, McHenry and Thompson. And it does go through token issuance, when tokens or the transactions and tokens are overseen by the SEC, when they get to move to be overseen by the CFTC and how all the trading venues will work. So, I mean, things are definitely moving across the globe, as you said. And from a policy perspective, it's not just even about lobbying, but just talking about what good policy looks like is a global type of endeavor. I, I want to clarify a couple of things you mentioned. I'll start with one of the last things you said, which is more U.S. focused. But I think people get really confused by all the different governing bodies in the U.S. The SEC, I think that's the one that people see the most. But then there's also the CFTC. There's all these other governing bodies. Can you just give us a really quick rundown of what each body is in charge of and what's the difference between all of them? OK, I'm going to do like a government, not a governance, but a government 101. So U.S. there, it's three arms of the government. There's the administrative branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. Administrative branch is White House president, really overseen by everything that the president does. Legislative is Congress, and there is the House and the Senate. The House and the Senate are broken up into multiple committees, and they oversee lots of different parts of just our world and our economy and the things we live in. Some oversee the financial types of things. When House Ag stands for House Agriculture Committee, they normally oversee things like the farm bill, but because the CFTC, which I'll get to in a second, regulates certain types of commodities like corn, ag oversees that. So you have the legislative branch and then you have the judicial branch, which is really, really important for crypto too these days. But that's really the court system in the United States. There's obviously a federal court system and a state court system. So that's how it's broken up. The administration, I think, is important to keep in mind in the U.S. and crypto because they have expressed a lot of skepticism 
The president's economic report a few months ago had this whole section on digital assets and said, like, what's crypto good for? Like, it can't replace fiat. And we just don't think there's any fundamental value with it. And then obviously, I think there have been a lot of bills circulating in the past. And there are a lot of different bills circulating currently in all different parts of Congress, the House and the Senate on all different topics touching crypto. And then obviously, we've seen a lot of things coming out of the courts of late, whether it be the Ripple decision or the Terra decision or the Binance and Coinbase cases. But with respect to the administration, the SEC and the CFTC actually fall under the administrative branch, as does the Treasury Department, which has also put out information about crypto and illicit finance and things like that. And so the SEC, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission, is a market regulator that is meant to ensure that there is broad consumer protection in the securities markets, mostly through robust disclosure and how people talk about what they're issuing and how they work and things like that. The CFTC is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and it sounds like they oversee commodities, but not only. What they really mostly oversee is what are we called futures and derivatives. So for listeners, things like perps are typically overseen by something like the CFTC or derivatives, things like that. And as I said, the CFTC usually looks at commodities like if you're trading gold or if you're trading like corn futures or I don't know, like everything around us is a commodity. The interesting thing is that the CFTC mostly has jurisdiction to regulate the market. And they are much more a like, is the market running orderly and efficiently? They are less a consumer protection regulator. They are that too. But it's really because derivatives and futures are pretty sophisticated financial products. They really try to look at regulating the financial markets and the thresholds to really trade futures and derivatives in the U.S. are high. Like you need to have a certain amount of money or capitalization or level of sophistication to be able to do it. The interesting thing is back in 2015, they issued an order, the CFTC did in this case called CoinFlip, where they said all cryptos are commodities. That's 2015. That's way before we saw this ICO boom. That's way before even former Chair Jay Clayton said all ICOs are securities. So they've said crypto are commodities for a long time. The way that crypto trades now on centralized exchanges is in what's called a spot market. And the only thing the CFTC has authority over for the spot market is anti-fraud, right? They don't say, here's how spot market exchanges work and here's who can trade and things like that. So one of the reasons people have said we really need new regulations in the United States is to give the CFTC authority to regulate the spot markets in the same way it regulates the future than derivatives. So that was like government 101. I hope people were taking notes because that was great, but that was a lot. Going back to some of the cases you mentioned, I was wondering if you could give us just a quick overview of what the recent Coinbase lawsuit was, like what did the SEC come after them for? How did they respond? And then what does this tell us about what the SEC's strategy is, from your opinion, at least, and what we can maybe anticipate seeing in the future? Oh, anticipate is hard because I think the SEC sees its jurisdiction and mandate extremely broadly with respect to crypto, because if they're really a consumer protection regulator and crypto is traded heavily in retail or being participated in by retail in particular, I think the SEC sees their mandate as protecting retail. And so that's why they've been a very aggressive regulator. The Coinbase case is just allegations by the SEC against Coinbase for doing a lot of different things. But mostly, and more importantly, 
for being an unregistered securities exchange. So the way that people trade securities in the United States is on national stock exchanges. But you and I can't go straight to the New York Stock Exchange or to the NASDAQ and say we want to trade there. You have to go through a broker. The brokers have to be members of the exchange. And then a separate entity called a clearing agent works with the broker and the exchange to update the records of your trade of a securities. That sounds super inefficient when we think about how just like the world works generally today. And it is an old construct, right? Like the Exchange Act is from 1934. And so it's pretty old. Before telephones were even around. 100%. And by the way, people didn't even like telephones when they came out. The president at the time told Alexander Graham Bell he didn't think there was going to be any use for it. So I think of those types of things to comfort myself when people say there's not be any use for crypto. But anyway, so one of the things that the SEC alleges is that you are running a national securities exchange and you didn't register as that, but you're also doing the functions of a broker and a clearing agent because of the way crypto trades. And you can't be doing those things. You didn't register for that either. So that's a big thing. I think one of the most novel things we've seen in this case is that they allege that Coinbase Wallet is a broker and didn't register with the SEC. So I think that's pretty aggressive from just a software perspective because it just touches all the ways that we engage in self-custodied or self-hosted transactions. And I think it sort of misunderstands fundamentally how wallet software works. They said it's a broker. The wallet is a broker because it routes transactions to DeFi, which for those of us who know how these wallets work, they don't route the transactions to DeFi. You give the instructions and wallets broadcast the information. And then they said they're running an illegal national securities exchange and listed a number of different types of tokens that were supposedly securities. But this is just a complaint. The SEC is still going to have to go through and prove that at least one of these tokens is a security and then prove all its other allegations. And it has to go through all sorts of discovery before it even gets there. And the way Coinbase has handled the case so far is to make what's called a motion for judgment on the pleading saying, based solely on just what you put in the complaint, SEC, you don't have the ability to go forward with this case. So it's an aggressive play, a good litigation play. The interesting thing is, if you see some of the transcript from one of the early Coinbase hearings, you can see that the judge in the Coinbase case, a democratically appointed judge, as far as I remember, really questioned the SEC hard to say, you approve their S1, right? Their ability to go public and to IPO and to sell Coinbase shares to the American public. And now you're suing them for the same type of activity they were engaged in when you approved their S1 or their ability to go public. And the judge has really been skeptical of that, which I thought was really interesting to see. Yeah. So this is why I was wondering what your view is on what the SEC's strategy is. Do you think the SEC truly believes they can win on all of their allegations? Or do you think they're just doing this to make some sort of statement? Both. I think I don't know if they think they can win on every single allegation in here. As a litigator, you have rules that when you go to court, you have to believe you have a good faith basis for all of the allegations in the complaint or else you can get sanctioned as a lawyer, have to pay a fine or something like that. So they would say that they have a good faith basis for all of the allegations in the complaint. I do think that there has been a broader general strategy by the SEC meant to constrict the entire market. So you saw right after the Binance and Coinbase cases, 
there was a pullback in the markets, but people have sort of said like, oh, this is going to be a long, slow burn. We're not going to get any answers today. You had Ripple, then you had Terra, then you're sort of seeing this patchwork of court cases. And for lawyers in the space, you knew there was going to be a patchwork and they'd show different things over time. But I now think that people really understand the courts aren't going to give us the clarity we need either. And so we're just going to have to wait it out because I think the markets have sort of evened out post Coinbase too. And I think the other thing that was really indicative of the fact that the SEC wants to constrict the markets a lot is a lot of the tokens that they named as securities are either layer one or layer two related tokens. But I think they wanted there to be this slowdown in usage or purchase or things like that of those tokens so that the base layer would be constricted. And that obviously hasn't happened either. Do you think that this tells us anything about how the SEC or the CFTC or the government is going to come after DAOs and NFT projects? Because so far, they've really focused most of their energy on these DeFi protocols. But now with a lot of DAOs coming to the forefront, a lot of NFT projects, most of these projects aren't really backed by much of a legal backbone or structure. What is going to happen to them in the future? I unfortunately have the like, it depends lawyer answer for DAOs. Because if you think about Uki DAO, which was this case that the TC brought against the BZX founders, and then they brought a case against Uki DAO. But the facts there were very, very bad, right? There were allegations that founders said, we need a DAO for you guys to do what we can't be doing. And we're going to use it for regulatory arbitrage. Okay, if you have public statements like that, and the DAO is really running a business and not doing it very surreptitiously or anything like that, this may be held to be similar to corporations or LLCs or things like that. But these large-scale DAOs with delegates and active voting and lots of participation and tons of proposals look very different. And so I think it's going to be really hard for the theories to move forward. That being said, the question becomes, well, who in a DAO will defend the case, right? Will the cases all just be brought and then go to default judgment because nobody shows up? So I do think if there is ever this movement against most, and I will say, just moving outside the U.S. perspective for a second, governments around the world are definitely grappling with what to do. There's been a lot of discussion in the EU about what fully decentralized means and if DAOs can be considered entities or anything that would fall under Mika. So it's not just in the U.S. that we need to be worried about DAOs. We need to think about them everywhere and what they are and what they do. But I think that's going to be very complex. What would you advise DAOs that are operating today? Like, what can they do to be best protected in the future? I say this, forget from a regulatory perspective, but from just like a general ethos perspective and going back to what Bitcoin was all about and Ethereum was all about, make sure you're being true to what your mission is. If you're running a company... Maybe incorporate LLC, have real corporate protection and somehow put in voting mechanisms and things like that. But that will protect you. First of all, I'd like us to stop calling them DAOs because when you have the organization at the end, it sounds like something a little more concrete. But if you see these very robust DAOs that either have delegates and super active non-original software developer participants in them, I think that you should remain true to them and continue on with the innovation. And that's what I hope everyone keeps doing and building, notwithstanding all this. And I think that because there is less fear of unnecessary enforcement action and things like that in both the EU and the UK and parts of Asia, I'm really hopeful that if people are fearful about building in the US, they know that they have lots of places to go that are very reasonable to build and to continue to innovate. 
because I do think that we're building something great with this entire system, truly. Going back to Mika for a second, I know you said Mika doesn't really cover DAOs or NFTs or anything like that. How do you see that developing in Europe since they're kind of in the same boat that we're in in, in the U.S. right now or similar? Yeah, they don't have aggressive regulators and like these huge enforcement actions that may go country by country, like it's possible France or Germany or something. But we haven't seen as much of that. France is a very forward thinking jurisdiction in terms of crypto. Germany has really done a big about face on crypto. They were very restrictive for a long time. And now they're opening up and really putting in good licensing and regulatory regimes. The thing about the EU regulators and policymakers is they are very open to sitting down. Polygon Lab sponsored a workshop in June where we brought together a lot of them to to talk about ZK tech and decentralized identity and what the EU is actually building out their own version of decentralized identity that's going to be blockchain based. So you could get state issued credentials that you could use in blockchain based systems. So it's very different. I think there will be a lot of engagement. Is it going to be perfect? No, because they're regulators and they have to do things where they think they need to both protect users and protect markets. But if we're really building out a real system that we think will sustain the economy, and I do think many in the EU do believe they can, that blockchain-based systems are going to sustain the future of the economy, then we can engage and really talk about what that looks like and the reality of the tech and things like that. What do you think this will mean for the U.S. in the future? Assuming that crypto goes mainstream, do you think the U.S. is going to stand their ground and say, no, this is too risky business for us. We don't want to touch it. And all the key players in the space are going to move away or essentially nothing's going to change. Well, I would almost argue that crypto is creeping towards mainstream in the U.S. before the regulation is really catching up to it. So if you see something like BlackRock and all these huge financial institutions make applications for Bitcoin ETFs, that feels like a really big movement and kind of really moving towards mainstream. Like, fine, not everybody is on decentralized social and people are still using Twitter or X or whatever. But I do think that portions of the crypto economy are already becoming mainstream. I also don't think we are going to see this mass exodus out of the EU anytime soon, at least for some of the bigger players, because I think people are hopeful and working really, really hard. And even before we hopped on, I just read this article about how crypto companies are really bulking up on policy people and lobbyists, even internally, to make a big push to get things done in the United States. And I will say that staffers on the Hill and members of Congress are super receptive to sitting down and talking to people. Even some of the Congress people who are more aggressive and taking more aggressive stances have staffers who will sit down and talk to you about good alternatives for illicit finance and things like that. So I think things are moving in a direction where we're not going to see a mass exit. I will say I don't think smaller software developers are setting up anew in the U.S. right now, because why would they there as we talked about the great alternatives? Yeah. I was going to ask you before, too, what's your take on the Wyoming DAO LLC? When we were talking about DAOs, I was thinking about that because that's really the only specific DAO protection, at least by name, that we have in the U.S. Yeah, although there are bills going through the California state legislature and the Texas state legislature now on DAOs, too. My personal feeling is if you want to run something like an LLC, run it like an LLC. There's really good corporate law in Delaware, and you can make certain changes and amendments to how the LLC necessarily works to make it more DAO-like or to make different types of decision-making work. But I'm a formally trained lawyer from back in the day, so I'm sort of like, do you want an LLC? Do an LLC. But I do really commend the effort to think about 
what to do at the state level for these new types of structures. With all the regulation we've talked about, we've talked about U.S.-specific regulation, we've talked about MECA, which is EU-specific. How do these all play together? Because with crypto, so much of our transactions are cross-border. So how do we even know which jurisdiction's laws apply? Great question. Some of it, like if you're a U.S. resident transacting in crypto, you have to deal with U.S. taxes. And you'll have to figure out if any of your transactions with somebody in, let's say, France will subject you to French tax. Usually not. And a lot of crypto trading or things by itself look similar to financial transaction. The question really is, in the U.S., sometimes crypto is classified as property. If you do transactions in the U.K., it may not be. So some of it, to your point, it's really borderless. And even as interesting because there was a discussion paper put out, I think, by the tax authority in the UK that said, what percentage of DeFi transactions happen in the UK? And we put out a response that said, like, you don't know, because to your point, there's no location for a DeFi protocol. So you have to think about the location of the user rather than the location of the transaction as a whole. I do think harmonizing all of these regulations is going to be a big challenge over the next decade because, to your point, they're being built out in different ways. But a lot of that will have to do with the licensing of the companies in those different jurisdictions. Video powers the Internet, but building with the most engaging form of media shouldn't be complicated or expensive. LivePeer's suite of developer tools powered by the LivePeer network Make it easy to build performance video experiences affordably, at scale, and with no vendor lock-in. Designed to give developers the freedom to innovate, creators autonomy from platforms, and viewers a choice in their experience. Visit livepeer.org to get started today. So to sort of wrap up here, what would you say are the most important takeaways about crypto legal or policy considerations that anybody in this space right now should know. How much time do we have left? Just kidding. Most important thing you can do, I care deeply about, is please keep innovating. There are ways to keep building. Don't close up shop just because things feel difficult right now. Before, I was thinking about coming on today and the message I wanted to leave people with. And it feels really bad right now. And most of us are so young that we don't remember the fight for the internet because we all just have sort of lived with the internet all of our lives. But there's a whole group of people who went through that battle as well. And I can't say if it felt as dire, but I think a lot of them really were under fire for a very long time. We always talk about fighting the banks. They were fighting telecom companies back then and nobody stopped building the internet. And I really don't want the builders to stop building now. There is always a way to make what you want to do happen. It might not be perfect, right? You might have to geofence a certain jurisdiction off your front end. Not have to, but like that may be the legal advice you get and what you decide to do. So that may means growth is slower than you expected. Or you may not launch a token relating to a DAO or something like that when you want to or in the way that you want to. But that doesn't mean you can't keep coming up with amazing ideas and figuring out how to get them into the world. So that's my real takeaway. And then talk to lawyers who understand the tech. I would say almost every major law firm now has a great blockchain practice. And I think that's pretty exciting because it, it means we're coming and we're here to stay, which I think people really understand. But also there are lots of great lawyers out there who really have spent a long time playing around with the tech and understanding it and also understand good regulation in the U.S. So do some word of mouth. Back in the day, 
when I was really starting my crypto practice, a lot of my clients came through word of mouth. So reach out to people. People can reach out to me, DM me on Twitter or X or whatever, and I'll be happy to put people in touch with the lawyers who can help. I love that positive note. And I actually, I lied. I have one more question. For people that want to also contribute to this policy discussion, people maybe working in the space and want to help out and help educate policymakers as much as possible. What are things that anybody listening, not somebody who has a job in policy, but anybody listening, is there anything they can do to help the cause? So, so much. So what I hear a lot about on the Hill is people saying that they don't hear from their constituents about crypto being an important issue for them. So call your representatives. Coinbase has something out called Crypto 435, and it will tell you where your district is and who your representatives are. They probably make it really easy to email them, to call them. But like you go on there and you can even Google it, too, and say, what's my congressional district and give the city that you live in. But please reach out to your representatives, write an email or call and leave a message with whatever staffer picks up and say, crypto is an important issue to me please look into it further. And I live in your jurisdiction. That's the easiest thing you can do if you are in the U.S. You can think about contributing and it doesn't have to be big amounts to your representative if you think they have good crypto policies. And then the other few things you can do is if you want to do something specific, have meetings or something like that, or even have deeper discussions, you can email the Polygon Labs policy team at policy at polygon.technology. We get lots of requests from people who want to get involved. So we're happy to do that. And the last thing I can do is my own little shill, which is Polygon Labs created something called the Value Prop. You can find it at thevaluprop.io. It is an interactive website that features all sorts of use cases for blockchain-based technology. It's chain agnostic, so we have everything on there from Bitcoin, Ethereum, to XRP Ledger, to Polygon, to Solana, to Filecoin. And we started out with 300 applications, now have something like 450 because people have contributed with their ideas. So you can find it on my Twitter. I've pinned it up there. But also just reach out if you have questions about how to get involved. The valueprop.io is an incredible resource. There's so much information on there. I would really encourage anybody to check it out. And then finally, we usually wrap up with an explain your tweet segment, which because I was like, do I have spicy tweets? I don't think you so. don't. You don't. No. And that's exactly our problem, <laughs> which understandably so as a lawyer, you probably shouldn't have too many unhinged tweets like the rest of crypto Twitter does. So good on you for that. You have a lot of retweets. You have a lot of educational, informative posts. It's all really good stuff and people should go follow you. But I just wasn't able to find anything super spicy. However, we did have a couple questions from the community that were kind of spicy. So I'm just going to do that instead. So the first one is Meg Lister on Twitter said, I've heard a lot of crypto will succeed, but perhaps not in the U.S. and would love to hear Rebecca's take on that. We've kind of touched upon this a little bit, but this is kind of going a step further and getting a little spicier. I do think it will succeed elsewhere first. There's just so much motivation and less fear in building outside the U.S., and what it looks like here may look very different than other jurisdictions. So we're here to stay. And I think people understand that. But whether it gets built out much further in the UK, which is really engaging with the community and has been for many, many years, honestly, and is just really ramping up their efforts now post-Brexit too. And they also have a really robust economy and it's easy for people to get there. And the time zone isn't crazy. So I actually am pretty bullish in the UK and have been for a long time. 
Are there any other regions right now that you're super bullish on? If somebody's a digital nomad and is looking for their next place to live other than the UK, what else would you say to look at? France is a great crypto community. They're super fun. Obviously, like it's, it was there for many years, but they also just have a great community, great crypto channels and things like that. I think the crypto community is really building out in Japan, too. They have a lot of people who are really focused there and coming up with cool ideas and thinking about tax issues and DAOs and gaming and all sorts of stuff. So there are a lot of fun places to go. Singapore would be cool. UK, France, Japan, Singapore. There you have it. There's your list. All right. And then one more spicy question. This one's from David Silverman, your number one fan and a mutual friend of ours. He's great. He says, how can I not go to jail as a U.S. citizen building in crypto? Thanks, David, for that question. I'm also one of David's number one fans. I mean, I know it was sort of maybe like a tongue-in-cheek question from David, but I don't think it's a question that doesn't come up from time to time. So even post-Tornado Cash, I got a lot of questions from software developers saying, am I going to jail for building this technology? If you are truly just building software and the software doesn't have an intended criminal or nefarious use, right? It's just software that can be used and you don't have an intent for it to be used in a nefarious way or in a criminal way. There's a high likelihood, this is not legal advice, but there's a high likelihood you're not really going to jail. And a lot of this boils down to intent and an understanding of what your technology can do and the way it will be used. I think people will say, oh, this is decentralized and then have some call and say, actually, let's regulatory arbitrage and not do it. I mean, those people didn't go to jail. That's really civil penalties. Getting to a criminal penalty threshold is very, very, very difficult in the United States and requires a lot of nefarious intent. So just build and build honestly and build creatively and build for good. And I think hopefully you'll be okay. Love it. This is probably the most positive message I've ever heard from a lawyer that's been on the podcast before. Most of them come on and it's like a pretty low energy, low vibes conversation, understandably. But I appreciate your energy and positivity. I mean, look, do I think we're going to win? We being the crypto community win every case against the SEC? No. Do I think we're going to sustain more blows over time in the United States? with some of these regulatory enforcement actions? Yes. I don't think it's all rosy and everything's going to move forward and we don't have to worry about anything. But I think crypto's here to stay. I mean, we also did talk mostly about policy. We didn't just talk about what's happening legally. But I think there's a lot of hope around the world. And I'm also like an optimist. The one thing I would say is also just be real about how you talk about what you're doing, too. I think people will say something is decentralized when it's not. I think people will say something's decentralized where there's a point of centralization. I do want people to be really honest with themselves. Decentralization is not this regulatory panacea, which means you don't have anything you have to do. And so on the like, wah, wah, like Debbie Downer side of things, be honest with yourself about what you've built and what you're building and the stage it is in. And like, you will have things you have to do from a legal perspective or a regulatory perspective, depending on what stage of the building you're in. And I think that's important too. Great advice. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for taking the time to come on today. Thank you to the community for bringing her on. Lastly, before you go, Rebecca, just tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you personally. And also, again, remind people of the value prop and how they can get involved and how they can also engage more with the Polygon community. Sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at Rebecca Redig one Make sure you're not getting any of the imposters because they're coming out a lot these days. And you can reach out to the Polygon Labs policy team at policy at polygon.technology. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you listeners for tuning in. And we will be back again next Thursday with another episode of Rehash. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Rehash. Rehash is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Diana Chen, and sponsored by Lens, Livepeer, Quest, and Lore. 
Rehash is also supported by our community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes part of the Rehash community and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. To learn more about how to become a guest on the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash podcast. And to learn more about sponsoring the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash sponsor. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at rehashweb3 or on lens at rehash.lens. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.